You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. And This month is September as you all know and it's Recovery Month. SAMHSA, which is a Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, sponsors and promotes this whole month of recovery-oriented activities and recovery awareness. And we are very lucky today to have as as our guest Renee Zito, who is the director of the California Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs. Renee was appointed director of the California Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger on February 22, 2007. In her role, she leads the state alcohol and drug treatment and prevention efforts. She oversees approximately 300 employees in the department and is responsible for an annual budget of $600 million, which includes funding for both the Federal Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Block Grant and the Drug Medi-Cal Program. Renee's extensive background in the, in the treatment profession brings a unique perspective to the Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs. Renee previously served as Director of Programs at Marin Services for Women since 2000, where she oversaw and managed the staff for the residential and outpatient programs, housing and education services, as well as the admission department. She has also served as, as Executive Director of Hazelton Alcohol and Drug Addiction Treatment Center in New York. Prior to that, she was Director of Treatment at Smithers Alcoholism Rehabilitation Center of the St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center. Renee taught at the New York State Academy of Addiction Studies and served as an adjunct instructor at Hunter College. Renee is originally from San Francisco and has a master's degree in social work from Hunter College and a bachelor's degree from Fordham University. Welcome, Renee. Thank you for taking time to uh, do our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Um, I must say that you certainly have been in, in the who's who of addiction programs in terms of um, <laughs> of working. Yeah. And as this is Recovery Month, um, right. could you begin by talking about um, recovery from your perspective? Oh, absolutely. I, I, there's nothing I enjoy more than talking about recovery and, and sharing the message of recovery with people. Uh, I was at the, the cap, we had our uh, California Recovery Happens event last month on the steps of the state capitol, and there were thousands and thousands of, of recovering people there. As a matter of fact, they had actually 4,000, they, they tab up the, uh, the number of years that people have, and at the end of the, the session, they realized that they had over 4,000 years of recovery just there that day. So that was incredibly powerful, you know, to realize that there was so much recovery. And when I walked around and talked to people, there were people who had six days and 12 months and uh, six months and and then, of course, on and on with many years. I myself, um, I am in long-term recovery from alcoholism, which means that I have not had a drink or a drug in over 32 years. Uh, I, I started my recovery Back in 1975, um, trying, I didn't know what was the matter with me. I, I, I suddenly I had lost control over drinking. I was doing things that were against my values, um, and I tried a number of different things in order to try to do something about my drinking. I thought it was some kind of emotional problem. Um, I got into therapy and. Um, that was didn't work because he knew nothing a lot about alcoholism and I knew less. So it was like the blind leading the blind. 
Uh, I got, I went into group therapy and, um, that didn't work because I lied to them or didn't tell them anything about myself. I was in, went into scream therapy, which involves screaming. I mean, you, you're desperate. You don't know what's the matter. And I thought, well, maybe this is an emotional problem. So I went to this, or, this, uh, agency in New York that, uh, was involved with screen therapy, and the idea behind the screen therapy was you were to get in touch with your feelings, and then you know all the negative things in your life would end. And I moved into the place for a week of intensive, which involved screaming for nine hours a day, and I realized that I could scream with the best of them. You know, I mean, I really, and I didn't drink for a while because it kind of fed my belief that you know I was now getting in touch with my feelings and particularly my anger and that was the cause of all of this. I didn't want it to be alcoholism. I wanted it to be emotional. And then one night, you know, after about 2 or 3 months, I was in the kitchen, we had company and I was making drinks for them and I, you know, I it was the alcoholic thinking and I just said, "Well, you're not really an alcoholic, Renee. It was all emotional problems and now you're in touch with your emotions." And you can drink safely. And, of course, I sneaked that drink and I sneaked the next drink. And the next morning I was at the liquor store waiting for you know, it to open so I could get my bottle of vodka. Um, I did, got involved in <clears throat> hypnotism. Uh, and this was craziness. <laughs> I went to this hypnotist every Saturday morning at 9.30. Um, we toasted each other with orange juice because, you know, he said, oh, you're sober now, you're sober now. And I had drank before I got there. So it was, you know, an ongoing um, alcoholic craziness, truly craziness. Uh, I, I never, ever want to forget how awful it was at the end. You know, a lot of times you can tell funny stories about your recovery and what happened when you were using. But I re- when I reached the end of my active alcoholism, I was in total, total despair. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I had, was filled with self-loathing. I really had no idea what was going on in my life. I had no idea what, why did this happen. You know, I, I remember one time going up, I was thought this was a way to control my drinking, and I went up to visit my parents upstate New York um, for, for the weekend, and I thought, oh, because I'll be with them, I won't drink. Well, of course, that didn't work, and I, I, I got out, went to the liquor store, came back, and wound up being really intoxicated. I don't remember any of this, but I almost fell into the fireplace. And they got me into bed, and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning um, out of this kind of uh, self-alcohol-induced stupor, and I heard my parents talking in their bedroom. Um, And it it was so painful to listen to them because I I remember listening to my father saying, what did we do wrong? How could this have happened? What went wrong? And I, you know, I, and I didn't know what went, what had gone wrong. I mean, something had gone so badly wrong in my life. You know, I, I, I saw myself as being, I thought of myself as being a nice woman, a nice human being. And because of my alcoholism, I became unnice. I became ugly. Uh, I would be willing to do anything in order to get a drink. Um, and so, when I, near the end of my drinking, we tried all this stuff, and my husband said to me, finally said to me, I love you too much to watch you die, and I can't go down with you. Nothing works. Screaming, cajoling, threatening, pleading, nothing works for you, and I have to get out. I cannot be a part of this. I cannot watch this anymore. And so, I mean, I knew that I had to do something because I knew he was absolutely serious about this. And we started looking for apartments to me, for me to live in, 
actually I was born and raised in New York and I was living in New York at that time. And um, we went to this one apartment nearby. It was a one-bedroom uh, furnished apartment. Um, and I, it was like we, we were thinking seriously of, of renting this place for me. And I, I literally saw myself, I visualized myself in that bed passed out with a, a bottle next to me, and it was I was panic-stricken, and I agreed to go into treatment. I didn't know what treatment was in those days because I'm sober a long time. It's very different than it is now. I mean, it was this was over 32 years ago, and so the only thing I asked is, I said to him, you promised me they won't put, put me in um, a straitjacket. Because at that point in my life, I thought that was the only way you're going to get me to stop drinking. You know, put me in a straitjacket and keep me away, keep me isolated someplace. And he said, no, they won't do that. And so I went into Smithers in New York City. Um, it was a rehabilitation center. It was a co-ed, <clears throat> excuse me, co-ed rehabilitation center. And, of course, I made him crazy because I was on the phone all the time saying, these people are awful. I'm not like them, Tom. I'm not like them. You know, you get me out of here. Get me out of here. Of course, I could have walked out the door any time I wanted to. And he would just say to me, that's okay. Just stay there. Just stay where you are. Um, and then I went through 28 days of treatment in this facility, and at the end of the 28 days, they said, you know, you are one sick cookie. You need far more than we can give you here in a month. And they referred me on to further treatment uh, in Minnesota, actually, to Hazelden, Hazelden in Minnesota. And my, my husband was totally supportive of their recommendation, and I tried everything in my power to not do this. But, you know, it was, they, they clearly saw that I wasn't, you know, I was willing to say anything they wanted to hear, but it wasn't real. And then, so it was an interesting cr- contrast, because then I went out to Hazelden in Minnesota, wound up being out there for about five weeks, a little over five weeks, and I was on a female unit. And the difference between being on a co-ed unit and a female unit was night and day. I think that when a woman goes into treatment and she's with men in a co-ed facility, uh, the woman, uh, the men tend to get well and the women to stay sick because they're so busy helping out and being caretakers of the men. And so here I was out in Minnesota in the middle of winter um, in this woman's unit, and it was the most powerful thing in my life, truly the most powerful, of beginning to look at myself honestly. You know, in, in, in the program, in an AA, there's an expression that says, the me that used to be will drink again. And I believe that, you know, if we don't work on changing ourselves and on, on changing our character, the improvement of our character through all of the steps, we're probably not going to stay sober because, you know, it's, it's not easy to stay sober. And if you feel that you're worthless, why would you fight to keep somebody, you know, keep yourself so, sober? So I went out to Minnesota and <clears throat> I just, it was an experience. Wonderful, wonderful experience. I think what happened out there is that Smithers helped me see how sick I was, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and Hazelina helped me recognize that I had value and that I deserved to be sober. So when I was, I can't even remember, 63 days, 60, something like that, 67 days sober, I came home to New York. And I did what they told me to do because I realized that if I was going to listen to me, I was listening to someone who was really not in her right mind actually at that point in my life. So I needed to be hooked up with other people <coughs> who are in, were in recovery. And that meant at that point in my life to be a member of AA, to, to go to 12-step meetings. And I did that. Uh, I, I, just, I was so afraid that I would drink because I, I believed my lies. I lied to myself about why I was drinking, and I began to believe those lies. So it was important for me to be around people who 
could give me straight feedback on where I was coming from and how off the wall my thinking may have been. Um, and it worked for me. I know there are many pathways to recovery, and, and only you know one of them happens to be, you know, twelve-step programs. And there are many other ways that people can get sober. But this was the way that worked for me. Um, I remember at the end when we talk about coming into the program with coming into recovery, feeling awful about yourself, feeling despair, and feeling I, I did not have low self-esteem. I had self-loathing. And, and because I didn't understand. I didn't understand why this was happening and, and what was happening in my life and my behavior under the influence. <clears throat> um, where am I going with this? Well, this gives me a good opportunity to ask <laughs> you a question because early um, on when you were talking about when you were first getting treatment, you didn't want it to be alcoholism. Why was that? Because I... I because I thought there was such a stigma attached to alcoholism. <clears throat> and there was. And there still is. It's not quite as bad as it was. But back then, there was an enormous stigma, for, stigma to a woman being alcoholic. And so I would rather be crazy. I would rather have had emotionally, serious emotional problems than be alcoholic. And I think the reasoning for that, when I got sober finally, the reasoning for that is I knew at a gut level that if I was alcoholic, there was something I could do about it. Really. There was, there was treatment available and there was something I could do about it. If I was crazy or had emotional problems, that wasn't my fault. I did, you know, and there, there was nothing I could necessarily do about that. You couldn't blame me for that. So I think the, the stigma was enormous back then. I mean, Betty Ford was a marvelous um, role model for a lot of us women because she kind of made it all right to go into treatment. I mean, we we would be able to look and say, my God, here's the president's wife admitting that she is an alcoholic, but yet she got help for it and she's in recovery. What what an incredible thing. And it took away some of the stigma. But it's, it, it is a frightening thing when you're out of... It is a frightening thing when you're out of recovery, out of control in, with alcoholism. Right. Um, and we'll be right back with our... Uh, with more with uh, Renee Zito in, in our next segment we'll talk a little bit about what it means to be in recovery and okay. recovery month we'll be right back you're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have 
smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out. And you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is One Hour at a Time. I'm Mary Woods, and today our guest is Renee Zito, who is the Director of the California Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs. And our focus today is on recovery and recovery month. And Renee, you were you did such a nice job of telling us about your own experience with alcoholism in treatment and recovery. And I was wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit more about stigma and shame that um, a lot of people experience, but I think especially women. I know in, when I've worked in treatment programs, and, and I do this when I teach as well, is I ask people to come up with all the adjectives that, you, that you've ever heard uh, a man being called as a drunk or a drug addict, and then all the adjectives that you have ever heard a woman being called as, a, as an alcoholic or a drug addict. And certainly the 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 words that we use to describe women are much more morally charged than what we use to describe men. My goodness, you did the same exercise I did when I was teaching men, the Master's in Counseling program at, at uh, Hunter College because it stunned me. Every time I did yeah. that, I would say, just what pops into your head? What are the words that pop into right. your head when you see, think about a female alcoholic? And they would say low life, promiscuous, uh, slut. Yeah, I mean, on and on. And yeah. those words were never applied to men, but only to women. And I think that even today where there has been so much education, there still is an, an incredible stigma associated with alcoholism and drug abuse. Um, I think that's why one of the things that we we were talking about before here was how important it is for people who are in recovery to be able to stand up and say, I got went I went to treatment and I got well. Recovery works. Treatment works. Recovery happens. Um, because there, too too often we do not do that. We tend to stay hidden in the shadows. We don't come out. We don't say anything. And people don't understand that there are people around who get well. That there is a, a enormous amount of people who are in recovery from addiction. But you know they need to step forward and they need to be able to put it out there and say, it works. I did it. You know, I, I always, from the very beginning of when I got sober, <clears throat> I, I had no problem self, self-disclosing. self I don't know why, but I had no problems. The first time I did it, it helped somebody. It was such an enormous difference. And I thought, wow. And so the next time something happened and I self-disclosed, it helped somebody. And every time from that point on, every time I was willing to self-disclose, it had an impact. It helped somebody help get them into tr- treatment or into recovery. Or, get, or at least to reach out for some help. Um, and I always used to love it 
because people would look at me and say, well, you don't look like an alcoholic. And right. I would say, well, what does a disease look like? You know, and I right. love doing that because, uh, you know, it, because it, there is this, you know, puffy faced, red nose, red nosed uh, view of what an alcoholic is. And that does not apply to most of us. Most of us have families, have jobs, are working, are paying taxes, um, and are we voting. look like everybody else. Right. But we right. have a disease, and, and what I really believe now is it's a chronic disease. It's a chronic disease. It's a chronic brain disease. And um, w- one of the things that we realize now in treatment is that if you are going to have long-term recovery, it isn't just 28 days in a treatment facility and boom, you're well. It it really means that there's an ongoing uh, process of recovery that that helps you maintain long-term sobriety. But the stigma, I think the stigma with me began to go away when I went to meetings and I was with other women. I I deliberately chose to go to women's meetings because I felt I needed to do that. I needed to be with other women. And, um, And that helped me enormously. It helped me understand that I wasn't alone, which is a big deal with this disease. You somehow believe that you are the only one doing these terrible things and you are filled with such shame and remorse. And, you know, I remember at the end of my drinking wanting to kill myself. And I'm not a suicidal person and I'm not a depressed person, but I remember one night uh, sitting sitting on the window ledge in my apartment in Manhattan. Um, It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I knew I had been drunk the night before. I didn't remember what I had done. I was just overwhelmed with grief and sadness and remorse. And I sat on the window with my legs dangling out the window thinking, just let go. You know, if, if just let go, all the pain will be over, it'll be done. And I'm just so grateful, so grateful that I got back out of that window and got back in there because, you know, yes, I came into the, to recovery not feeling very good about myself, not having much self-esteem, but over the years of my recovery, I've worked on myself. I've, I've worked on changing myself. Um, you know, there's, there is, it's, there is something I read not that long ago, which was, it's never too late to become the person you have always wanted to be. And I think that's really true. You know, I came from, came into recovery being a secretary who, um, secretary slash office manager who had a high school diploma. And over the years of my recovery, I went back to undergraduate and got my undergraduate degree. I got my master's in social work. I, I, the wonderful thing of my recovery is that I was at Smithers in New York City and then went out to Hazelden. When I got sober and was sober for about two and a half years, um, I was hired at Smithers. Um, I went to Hazelden's counselor training program. I was hired at Smithers in New York City and became the director of treatment there after 15 years. I, after that, I was lured away and became the executive director of Hazelden in New York and was there for six years. And to me, this was an incredible, you know, it was sort of like my message to so many people is never, ever give up. Do right. the best you can. Put one foot in, in, in front of the other. Um, and just do what you can do, you know, that you may not believe what you are capable of. But, you know, I believe there's truly a plan for every one of us. And I think if we just do the best we can, put one foot in front of the other, that's, that plan will begin to unfold. Recovery right. to me is a journey, all right? It is what happens. I used to say when I first got sober, well, recovery is you no longer, uh, you're, you're no longer actively destroying yourself and you have a shot at changing your life. 
which is sort of true, but I also believe that, that what comes with recovery is working on yourself and changing yourself, looking at the things that you don't like about yourself and, and looking honestly, and it's not easy to do that. You know, it's, it's much easier to stay in denial and say, oh, no, no, I don't have any problems. Well, I had a lot of problems, and I had a lot of uh, character defects that I needed to work on. And just by being around people and being able to talk about that, people in recovery, and being able to talk about those things, I was able to start working on those issues and to take enormous, enormous risks. I mean, going back to college for me was an enormous risk. I was terrified. I mean, absolutely terrified. How was I going to write these papers? You know, and the undergraduate thing was more terrifying than the master's degree. I mean, the undergraduate was the beginning of, of, of doing this stuff and, and realizing I could do, I had a brain. I was able to, you know, to put things together and make, make sense and write good papers. And, and so, you know, I, I, I could go on and on about what recovery means to me. You know, there is a, what happens, I think, in recovery, certainly in my recovery, that what became very obvious is I started to develop a positive sense of identity and really a meaningful sense of belonging. I, I don't think I ever realized that, you know, when I talked about trust, I didn't trust anybody when I got sober. I absolutely did not. And I didn't trust God even. And it took me like two years to really, really admit that and accept that uh, that it was something very important for me to do, to be able to reach out, especially to other women, and learn how to trust them and learn how to let them know know me. And I think, you know, that's what recovery tends, is about. I love, there's so many quotes, you know, when you first get sober and you, this uh, slogans and stuff that you hear. But, you know, one of the things I loved once when I sat in this meeting and some guy said, you know, happiness is not getting what you want. It's wanting what you have. And I thought, how true, you know, we can go on and on in life wanting. I want this. I want that boat. I want that Cadillac. I want this. I want the huge mansion. Rather than pulling back and saying, the things that I have in my life, are they? do I want them? And I think that when we begin to do that, we can let go of so much, you know, materialism. Because that's not what spirituality is about. I, I believe with this disease, there is a spiritual component to it. And... um Spirituality is, you know, how do you even describe spirituality? Oh, let me think for a second. It's, it's what's meaningful in your life that goes beyond material reality. It's the values that you live The values. By. It's a never-ending improvement of, of your character. Um, and, you know, maybe other diseases have to do that. You know, we, we, have, a, we have a chronic disease. <clears throat> we have a disease that says we don't have a disease. And chronic diseases are not easy to recover from. You know, when you look at chronic diseases such as diabetes and high blood pressure and uh, heart disease and whatever, the recovery rates are not very good with those diseases because people will work on it for a while and then they'll slip back because they don't have a network of support. I think we, um, we people who are in recovery, have networks of support out there to keep us um, keep us on the straight and narrow path, to keep us on the path to wellness. Uh, and we're really very fortunate for that, you know, to be able to, uh, to... You know, my husband used to say to me, he wishes there was treatment for normal people. <laughs> you know, that, that um, you could go and spend a month or two months in a, in a facility and really take an honest look at yourself and be able to own the things that you don't like about yourself and your negative characteristics and begin to start reaching out and learning how to change those things and becoming, as I said earlier, becoming the person that you always wanted to be. And I believe that's possible. I mean, my message to people that I speak to in recovery are, 
is hang on. Just do the best you can, and it will come. Well, and I think the important thing for for anyone listening is, is as you said, recovery is a process. It's oh. not an event, and, yeah. it, and it will occur over time. And just like any other chronic illness, sometimes you'll have a period of time where you may be symptomatic. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person or right. it doesn't mean that you failed. It means that you have a chronic disease like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, yeah. and there may be times when you you may be symptomatic in your disease, and and that there, you can get back into treatment and that you can get back on track. And I, and I think that oftentimes what happens with this disease, especially, is that when someone is symptomatic, they're denied treatment, they're denied access to treatment, mm-hmm. they're thrown out of treatment, and and I think that's kind of shame on us. It is. Mary, can you imagine, I've, I've said this frequently, but can you imagine if I was a diabetic and I was out of control, I was eating, you know, Haagen-Dazs and chocolate ice cream and was totally out of, I wasn't taking care of myself, and I reached out, I needed to get into the hospital because I needed to be stabilized, and they said, well, too bad, you've had your one shot. Right. Or yeah. if you were diabetic, you were in the hospital being um stabilized on insulin, and somebody snuck in the Haagen-Dazs, and they found you eating Haagen-Dazs, and they discharged you. Yeah, exactly. And I think people need to look at how there is a special uh, negative uh, focus on addiction, that we don't treat it like other chronic diseases. You know, and also it's like people are, you know, expected, there is this expectation that if you go into treatment, say you're in a 28-day treatment facility, that you should be well. You, know, right. you should come out and be well rather than realizing that this thing is a process. It is a, it, the recovery, recovery process goes on for the rest of your life. Right. And it doesn't mean you have to relapse, but the reality is if you do, you're not a failure. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like the ice skater who's twirling around the ice and say she falls. Now, she could lie on the, uh, on the ice and stay there forever and freeze to death, or she could pick herself up and start twirling around. And I think people who, who may have relapses um, when they are in recovery need to not, not judge themselves so much. And the people around them need to stop judging them to realize that this truly is a chronic disease and it's, it's treatable. Right, and I think as treatment providers, we need to understand that, you know, we need to work with people who are still using substances. We need to work with people when they relapse and not say to them, come back when you're ready oh, or yeah. you're in denial. Or, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm not, I shouldn't laugh at that, but, I mean, I remember back in the days, I've worked in the field now for 30 years, and I remember back in the days when uh, literally, well, they're not ready. Right. All right. right. They haven't hit bottom. Right. Well, I don't believe in hitting bottom because I think too many people die in this life before they hit bottom. Right. You're absolutely right. And um, we'll be right back and talk more about recovery and hitting bottom with Renee Zito. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we're talking with Renee Zito, the director of the California Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs, and we've been talking about recovery and her experience with recovery. We've also been talking about Recovery Month and the importance of um, having a voice. If you're in recovery, be public about it. Be proud of it and let people know that recovery is normal and it happens. Uh, we have a, a person that we're working with here at Westbridge who started college um, He's in his mid-20s, and part of his introduction the first day of class is he introduced himself and explained that he was in recovery from drug addiction. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, everybody clapped. <laughs> and I said, what yeah. a wonderful experience. What a wonderful experience, you know? right. And good for you for putting that out there. You know, so I think it's scary for a lot of people because they, they feel that they will be judged, and I understand that. But I think after a period of time, you know, it's like the one of the examples I used that a, a long time ago it used to be called mental retardation, right? Then it became mental illness. Now it's called mental health, the Department of Mental Health. And, it, and that change came about because people were willing to stand up and advocate and say, no, you know, this, this is a, you can get well, there can be health here. You know, we don't like those derogatory terms, and, and it changed as a result of that. And I think things, if people are willing to step up, um, I mean, it's, it's like, look at what's happening with treatment. Uh, most of the treatment nowadays is paid out of public funds that more and more insurance companies have pulled out of paying for treatment. Um, and if they had an advocacy group out there who said, no, that's wrong, you know, this is, there should be parity, mental health and, and addiction should go hand in hand and be paid at the same, same rate. But in order to get there, we need people, we need a, a, an advocacy um, group who's out there calling their congressmen and their, their legislators and, and, and saying, we want this, this is important. Right. And, and all the parents whose uh, sons and daughters are incarcerated for minor drug charges, right. they need to call and say, this isn't right, my, my family needs treatment. They don't need to be in jail. Yeah, I, I find it crazy that you put people in jail for using um, using marijuana or using methamphetamine. What you need to do is get them education, and if you need to put them in treatment, you need to do that. But jail? What does jail do? Right. Or if you're in the great state of New York, if you get arrested three times for possession of marijuana, you end up in jail for the rest of your life. Well, we, Three strikes is out, and, yeah. and you're out is here in California, too. 
So that's that's an economical way to treat things. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we could talk about some of the good things that are happening out in California because I know there's a lot going on in terms of initiatives and treatment in California. Okay. Well, one of the wonderful things of having a, having this job is to be able to work on issues that I believe are important. And one of the most important issues from my point of view is women and women in treatment. That there is, there is, it tends to be money for putting pregnant women and women with children into treatment. But solo women, and all that means is a woman, she may even have children, but the children are older than 18. There's very little money involved, and they are the ones that go on a waiting list. And I think there has been, you know, we've put too much, there's nothing wrong with focusing on perinatal issues and pregnant women and, and women with children, but we forgot, we've, the focus has gone off the woman. And so when I came in here, we, the Office of Perinatal Services became the Office of Women's and Perinatal Services because I just wanted to stress that. I wanted to begin to look at, we need to do things to encourage women to get into treatment. Um, we, one of the things that we are doing here is that women are different from men and they respond to treatments differently. Um, you, women do not respond to harsh, shouting, um, therapeutic community types of approach. It doesn't work for most women. And so what we did here last year is, because I, I absolutely believe in trauma-informed and gender-specific gender treatment, and we brought together a group of clinicians and experts from around the state for a two-day conference here to, actually it was a workshop, to begin to look at what are the core competencies that we feel are essential that a woman, a program that's dealing with women must have. And we're talking about not just women's only programs, we're talking about women who are in co-ed programs. What are the core competencies that they must have? And they came up with seven core competencies, trauma-informed, gender-specific, health and wellness, women-specific curricula, cultural competency, safety, case management, clinical supervision, and those are the core competencies that we are looking at um, in, in helping treatment facilities in the state of California in, in, integrate into their programs. Um, we are also talking about a gold standard here. We have some superb treatment facilities for women in the state of California, and the gold standard would be for those voluntarily wanting to step up and say, we want to be recognized for the level of treatment that we have, which includes mental health, which includes vocational issues, training. Uh, and they can get a gold star uh, award from the state of California, and the good thing about that is they can use it for marketing, to say we've been recognized as one of the best. Uh, this year, the department is conducting an online survey to figure out, to, to assess the readiness of the 1,000 programs in the state that serve women. And the results of the survey will allow us to provide technical assistance to these providers in, in areas that the survey identified as needing improvement. Um, we are doing, we have a number of different initiatives as far as women are concerned. We're going to be putting together a women-specific um, alcoholism counselor certificate so that if you, this is a way for a provider to know that this person that you are thinking of hiring, if they have this women's certification, counselor certification, that they know how to deal with women, that they have, have the ability and the knowledge to deal with women in treatment. I feel so really strongly about this, that this is something that we need to do. 
because too often we've we've allowed women to be treated the way men are treated. And men are different, as I said earlier. They are different. They respond differently. I mean, one of the big things that happens with women, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, Mary, but, you know, is trauma. So many women who come into the doors of a treatment facility have been suffered some kind of abuse in their lives. And as a result of that, they may be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, there are symptoms of that. And what happens is a woman comes in the door, her drugs are taken away from her. She, In order to deal with that trauma on the outside, she's self-medicated. And so now she's in treatment, the drugs are taken away, and she's now feeling crazy and out of control. And part of what's trauma-informed is to say, no, you are not crazy. This is the symptoms of PTSD. This is what you may be experiencing. You need to get help for this if you are going to maintain your recovery. We're not going to focus on unearthing memories in treatment, but we need you to know we're going to teach you how to stay safe when you leave here and and, and encourage you to get help for the PTSD. Um, I just feel marvelous to be in a position to do a lot of these things. We're we're looking at a um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder campaign we're looking at a campaign, of a, a collaboration with the Department of Aging to work on uh, older, older, older women's issues. I mean, they tend to be forgot, forgotten. They tend to be pushed aside, and they're an important pop, part of our population, and we need to, to honor them and focus treatment issues on them. Well, I think um, you bring up so many good things. I think, first of all, I don't think fetal alcohol effects are really ever taken into consideration once the a baby's gotten beyond maybe six or seven months. But as as kids develop, you know, we often, um, we talk about attention deficit disorder and we talk about conduct disorder, but I don't think um, children are routinely assessed for fetal effects of alcohol or substances. I think also because there is such an an incredible stigma and shame associated with that woman. I I mean, I remember when I was in, in treatment as a clinical provider and how hard it was for a woman to admit that her child had been damaged in the uterus because of her right. usage. It was so painful. It was such shame. Right. It was very, very difficult. And it's sort of like push that under the under the rug. Don't look at it. But as you said, it is a huge issue. And it really affects how effective treatment is for the person. If you're if you're treating somebody who has fetal effects or a child that has fetal effects syndrome, that's much different than somebody who has an attention deficit disorder. Indeed. And the outcome is much better if you can treat it, what's there as opposed to what you think is there. Mm. You know? And the other thing I think that's really important that you talked about in terms of uh, women-specific treatment is that women have to like women in order to work with them. Yeah. And, and that seems to be obvious, but I know I worked in a woman's halfway house, and it was hard to find women who liked other women and, and who could tolerate all the energy that occurs when you have a group of women in the same room. And, and I think that that's something as clinicians we need to be aware of and, yeah. as well. Well, you know, we, we've been doing a lot of training in the state of California on post-traumatic stress disorder and how you deal with it in a women's treatment. And Stephanie Covington, who is one of the, the leaders in this in the state, has said to me, you know what the biggest issue is, Renee? It's the, it's the staff. Right. Because they haven't worked through their own issues. Right. On, right. They haven't worked through their own abuse issues. And so it's almost impossible for them to deal with their clients' abuse issues. And as a result, they want to get away from them. They they don't like them. They push them away. Right. Um, and so they re- it requires a lot of work on a clinician's part on themselves. And often the trauma gets diagnosed as a personality disorder. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, they're you borderline. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so and rather than looking at this person as dealing, doing the best they can with what they have to work with, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get re-traumatized by the diagnosis, by the way the system treats, treats them, or by just the fact that they're experiencing all this and nobody's validating it. How true. The other thing that you were talking about initiatives in the state of California, we have, we, it has really become very apparent that prescription drug abuse is rampant in the state of California. And so we started, we put together a prescription drug task force made up of 34 um, top-level people from around the state, from around the country, actually, from Partnership for Drug-Free America, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, um, the Attorney General's Office, the Department of Justice, so many different people. We've come together and began to look at this issue in California, and we, we, it was a surprise because we were focusing initially on youth, you know, we were told that this was a big issue. Pain, painkillers like Vicodin and, and OxyContin were a big issue for kids who were like 12 years old or 13 years old and how easy it was to get drugs off the Internet. And once we started to pull the data in, we began to recognize that it was not only young adolescents, but it was seniors. It was a huge issue with seniors. You know, there's a, there's a statistic that says, you know, people over the age of 65 represent only... 13% of the population, but account for 33% of all medications prescribed. Wow! And this is, and there, there are the average, the average senior has at least eight prescriptions that they use. And often, when they're abusing or misusing these medications, that mimics the signs of old age. So people can't, you know, truly get a handle on it. You know, one of the things that I always recommend is the people in your life, the caregivers, be aware, be aware of anything that, that's coming up that may be out of the ordinary and have it checked out. And we'll be right back to talk more about um, prescription misuse and uh, what they're doing in California to help address that issue. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, for our last segment today on um, Recovery Month. And uh, we're with Renee Zito, who's the director of the California Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs. And before going to break, Renee was talking to us about the um, 
the prevalence of prescription drug misuse and abuse um, in California, but that also mimics every state in the union. I think so. It's not um, unrealistic for to just think that it's California. I know in New Hampshire, the majority of people in the uh, opiate replacement clinics are not there because of heroin. They're there because of prescriptions. Yeah. So I don't know whether the same as in California or not. It is. But. OxyContin and, and Vicodin are, are big, big issues here. I mean, researchers reported, recently researchers reported a 700% increase in deaths due to at-home medication mistakes. I mean, the Heath Ledger thing is not an exception. No. This is no. happening to a lot of people that don't know, don't, don't understand the danger of using these drugs, particularly young people. Or keeping them in the medicine cabinet. If you go and you have minor surgery, you may get a prescription and use two, but then you keep them like for a rainy day. Right. And, and then you your nephew to... comes over and goes to yeah. your medicine cabinet and takes them. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it's one, one of the things that we mentioned earlier is how easy it is to get drugs over the internet. Right. You know, all you need is a credit card. And they, right. you know, in many cases, you don't even need a doctor. You just use your credit card and they'll send it to you overnight. It's right. scary. So it's right. a big issue. I know it's a big issue across the country, but we wanted to get a handle on this early on because when methamphetamine started, and it really started out here, you know, we didn't right. we didn't jump on the bandwagon fast enough. Um, the ma- the majority of women who come into publicly funded treatment, just to give you an idea, that most of them their drug of choice is methamphetamine. Sixty um, percent of the women who are pregnant who come into treatment here in California, their meth, it's, their drug of choice is methamphetamine, and then second comes alcohol. So mm-hmm. you know, this is a methamphetamine has been a big issue in California. Right. We want to get ahead of this on the prescription drugs so we can have we can have uh, ideas in place to deal with it. We can have strategies to deal with it and start working on it. Obviously, one of the, from my perspective, being a nurse, one of the first places I would look is to the prescribers. Oh um, yes. Are what kinds of things are you looking at to help educate and maybe monitor prescribers? We are doing. We are working with SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, to do some training of doctors in the state uh, to to begin to look at, you know, safely prescribing drugs to be look at the things you need to be on the lookout for if somebody perhaps is abusing them. You know, too many of these people go doctor shop, so mm-hmm. they hop around to different doctors. And so there are there are ways that we're trying to deal with the doctors in the state just to train them to be on the lookout for symptoms of this that they should be aware of. My daughter, who is 23, lives in another state, and she has impacted wisdom teeth. So she went to get a just a consultation for to an orthodontist uh, an oral surgeon to get her teeth extracted, and without ever signing on the dotted line, she was given a prescription for Valium and mm. uh, Vicodin. Wow! And it's like I said to her, "Don't go there. Go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the way they're practicing. Go somewhere else yeah. and tear up the prescriptions." You know, so it's it's kind of scary. It is. I was at a treatment facility in Southern California not that long ago, and the woman who's the director, her grand granddaughter. Uh, died two years ago of an overdose of prescription cough medicine. Not prescription, yeah. excuse me, over-the-counter cough Counter-cough, medicine. Yeah. And this woman said to me, you know, I've worked in the field forever. I know all about it. We thought we were safe because we had such knowledge. And yet right. here is my grandchild who's died of, of an overdose of over-the-counter right. pr- 
prescription, you know, over-the-counter cough medicine. That's really, really scary. You know, the whole thing is to get people to be aware, raise the consciousness, raise the level of this. You know, that it is, you know, Vicodin and Oxycontin and all those things, because it's given, prescribed by a doctor does not mean it's safe. And so a lot of people really believe that. Well, a doctor prescribed it must be okay. Because right. um, uh, oftentimes, you know, I can remember talking to physicians less than 10 years ago who didn't think benzodiazepines were addictive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's indeed. like, well, you know, don't. That's fine, but don't prescribe them to people who already have an addiction. Yeah, you indeed. know, and you know the Xanax, um, you know, Librium, Valium—they're all prescribed like, you know, candy. Like candy, yeah, like candy. Um, and and then what people don't understand is that when you become dependent on benzodiazepine, you know, um, getting off them isn't very—it takes a long time. Yeah. It's you know it's not like some of the other medications where it's a five or six day withdrawal, but this is a long term withdrawal. You know, indeed. So. You know, one final message I'd like to leave with your visitors, with your mm-hmm. viewers or, or listeners, is that there is no shame in having the disease of alcoholism and chemical dependency. The shame is not reaching out and getting the help that's there. Nowadays, there is so much help that's available if nothing else, to call a national council and get a referral to some place uh, or to go to 12-step programs or whatever. There's outpatient programs everywhere. And so the shame is not in having it. The shame is really in not doing anything about it, especially nowadays, right. because there are is, there is so many resources for people who have addictions to get help. And the, and the reality is, it's, it's, is that recovery happens. It happens. Treatment works. I believe that if I hadn't gotten treatment 32 years ago, I would be dead. I wouldn't be as director of the Department of Alcohol and Drug Programs in the state of California. I would be dead, and I know that. And the other place where people can go to is the Internet. Um, I know that if you logged on to the state website in California, you list your treatment programs on your website. Yep. Um, You can go to um, the... American Society of Addiction Medicine's yeah. website and find physicians who are um, proficient in treating yep. addiction. Absolutely. Um, you can go to the NADAC, which is the Association of Addiction Professionals website, and right. also find uh, counselors who are proficient in treating addiction. Um, SAMHSA has a website people can go to. You can pick up the phone book and find Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, mm. um, all kinds of resources out there for people. There's so. numerous, numerous resources available. Right. And, right. and the message is don't suffer. Don't don't right. hang on. Don't go to despair. Tra- treatment works. It's possible to get well. It's not only possible to get well, it's possible to really flourish in your life. Right. Right. And that um, addiction is a disease that can be treated. Yes. And... Um, in our last couple minutes, we have a couple minutes left before we sign off. I just wanted to thank you for being so open about your own recovery, and that's a wonderful uh, your role modeling um, to a lot of people, and I and I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I have to tell you something. When I was in treatment, and there were women who were in recovery, and they talked about it, they became my role models because I so admired them, and I thought. You know, this is this is incredible that this person is right. talking like this and has gone through such uh, awful it's, stuff. It's a wonderful yet is standing right there now in recovery. Yes. Uh, thank you once again for joining us and uh, have a great month. Thank you.
Renee. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you, Mary. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.